Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Good afternoon and welcome to eBible Fellowship Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today will be study number four of Daniel chapter one. And we're going to begin reading in verse three. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. I'll stop reading there. Now, um, in our last study, we were uh, looking at verse 3, and uh, also at the idea that uh, Daniel and his three friends were placed under the care of the master of the eunuchs, which meant that they themselves were eunuchs. And and we spent some time looking at a few verses, how um, the Bible speaks of eunuchs um, often in a favorable way, and they are uh, used as types and figures of true believers. But before we, we look a little bit more at eunuchs, um, let's also just recap the historical setting and what it means spiritually. This is the time of Judah's affliction at the hand of the Babylonians, and God uh, uses this period of history as a type and a figure of the Great Tribulation. So, King Nebuchadnezzar is representative of Satan and Babylon of the forces of Satan, while Judah is a picture of the New Testament churches and congregations. And when God uh, commanded the people of Judah to go into captivity, and God did command that, that is um, an example of coming out of Judah or leaving the church and going into Babylon as Babylon would picture the world. And, and so here we have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm more familiar with their, their Babylonian names than their Hebrew names. But we have Daniel and his three friends, who and there's four these four young men they'll be the focus pretty much throughout 
the book of Daniel's narrative section, which is the first six books. We, we actually will not read of any other Jews. There were many Jews in Babylon, but we're only going to read about these four young Hebrew males. And the reason is the number four points to universality. And, and so God here is focused in on the elect, all of the elect that will live in Babylon, and Babylon would be the world, uh, all, uh, and these young men came out of Judah, so they are all the elect that have left the church, that have gone to live out in the world in the time of the Great Tribulation, and the book of Daniel also uh, goes past that into Judgment Day, but for now, while they're in captivity in Babylon, they are out in the world. It, it's like the year 2001 and 2002 when the people of God heard about the end of the church age and, and all the way up to 2011 when, when God's people came out of the churches and they went out into the world and on Sundays they stayed at home or they went to a fellowship group that was not a church or they they met with a couple of believers somewhere. It is picturing that situation. And while we're out in the world, while we were out in the world during this time of the Great Tribulation, who was ruling the world? When God gave um, Satan rule over the churches and congregations, we know he gave him complete rule as he sat as the man of sin but God also expanded Satan's rule in the world during the time of the great tribulation also Uh, as it says in Revelation chapter 13 when the beast comes up out of the sea it says in verse 3 and I saw one of his heads as were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And then in verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven, and was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them, and and that would be those within the churches, we're very much aware of that, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast. And in that same chapter of Revelation 13, an image is made to the beast and all are commanded to worship. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden image and commands everyone to bow down and worship. But who does not worship? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And again, God's elect are touched. They, they also are experiencing that command that all the world must worship the beast. But they are God's elect, and so they remain faithful to God. And in this narrative section of the book of Daniel, this historical section of the experiences of these young men in Babylon, we're going to learn about our own experience living in the world in the time of the Great Tribulation period and the pressures that are brought to bear, that are placed upon the people of God, the elect people of God that have been obedient to God by coming out of the church and yet they come out of the church and they're in Babylon. It's not, um, you know, a, a wonderful place. It's not some paradise of some kind. It's a nation under the rule of an evil king and a king that is cruel and and very fierce and he rules his own people ruthlessly and this is where the people of God find themselves and right away right away as uh Daniel and his friends are placed under the care of the master of the eunuchs they're going to find out that even your diet even what you typically have eaten as a Jew is now going to be changed. The king of Babylon wants you to eat something else other than what you've been eating. And and that becomes a point of emphasis. That becomes a point where Daniel and friends take a stand And it's a small point, isn't it? Well, not to them. Not to them. You see, with God's people, every word of God is meaningful. It has purpose. And they stand for the word of God. Wherever that word is being assaulted, wherever the enemy of God and the enemies of his kingdom come against the word of God, and and they say now just give way just just give way on this issue that this is what the king wants you to submit to him about the people of god do not they they do not bow the knee they do not submit to uh Nebuchadnezzar nor to satan but they maintain steadfastly their position concerning this item because they know they uh, that there's they have a desire to be obedient to God they cannot give in they cannot give in on any point of doctrine and that's really what the changing of the meat is all about but lord willing we'll discuss that when we get to that verse a little further on right now Let's look at eunuchs again, and in Isaiah 56, it says, beginning in verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to Jehovah speak, 
saying, Jehovah hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith Jehovah unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. A eunuch will receive the, the ones that keep God's Sabbath and not uh, all eunuchs we read about in the Bible. Um, would we say represent God's elect? But many do. The ones that keep his Sabbaths and, and do things that please him, they will have an everlasting name. That is, they'll have eternal life. And so that verse tells us how God is viewing eunuchs as types and figures of his people. In Matthew 19, it says in verse 12, For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And that would involve spiritually being um, a spiritual eunuch for the kingdom of heaven or for God, for service to God. For example, if someone has been married and divorced, the Bible says you're to re- either reconcile, if possible, with your former spouse or you are to remain unmarried and not to be involved in any kind of relationship with the opposite sex of a sexual nature. You are to be like a eunuch. And so there are people of God out of a desire to be obedient to God's law concerning marriage and divorce, where they would stay celibate and conduct themselves like a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And also there are some people that they desire to remain in the single state and and they live their lives, male or female, Without any relationships, they conduct themselves that way like a eunuch and they do service to God. And so a eunuch is someone, as we read about them in the Bible, that God often has good things to say about, like the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who was reading the book of Isaiah and Acts 8 that we looked at last time. But there's also Ebed Melech. And in Jeremiah 38, we read of Ebed-Melech, also an Ethiopian eunuch. And his name, Ebed-Melech, means servant of the king. And and Ebed-Melech was a servant within the king of Judah's house. But his name actually spiritually would point to service to the king of kings, uh, God himself. And in Jeremiah 38, it says, beginning in verse 7, Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king, 
than sitting in the gate of Benjamin. Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes, under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords, and took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now I... I don't know what kind of hole they threw Jeremiah into, but that's exactly what it sounds like they did when we we see the difficulty that was involved in lifting Jeremiah up out of the dungeon. Uh, you know, it's not like they they walked down some stairs to a lower level and went over to an iron gate that was sealing him in and and put the key in the gate and opened it up and and said, come on, Jeremiah. But he was, uh, he was many feet down in some kind of dungeon that, that was filthy and, and, and there was mire he was sinking in. And it was necessary to basically make a rope and throw it down. And there were 30 men with Ebed Melech to lift him up all these feet that he was uh, in this hole. So it was a horrible place. And only one man in all Judah, one man in the whole nation who who went to the king, Ebed-Milek, an Ethiopian. He wasn't even a natural-born Jew. Uh, he was an Ethiopian man. And... And he went and he said what they have done uh, evil in casting Jeremiah into this pit, into the dungeon. Uh, who put Jeremiah in the dungeon? It was many of the leaders of Judah, princes and men like that, leaders of the various tribes. And here is an Ethiopian eunuch, someone who would have been very low in, in the court, uh, he he would not have a high position at all, and yet he is pleading to the king for Jeremiah and acknowledging that they have done evil, and the king hearkens to him and allows him to take Jeremiah out of the dungeon. Ebed-Melech is showing that he has, well, we would say today, a heart. He He's showing that he had compassion he had mercy and we know that the situation at this time is that 
Judah is under siege. Judah is already being besieged by the Babylonians and and the Babylonians have already damaged the city and taken many captive and uh, and they have cut off food to the city. Uh, there's there's basically a famine in the city. Um, it's a terrible time and all that pictures God's judgment on the churches and congregations when judgment begins at the house of God and Satan infiltrates the church, overcomes the church, the camp of the saints, is seated as the man of sin and the people of God left within Jeremiah Ebed-Melech are being mistreated. They are suffering great spiritual hunger because they're in a place they must get out of. Now, of course, Jeremiah, God had him there to continue witnessing. He's really a picture of the word of God that is witnessing to the people of God, that uh, the truths of the wrath of God being upon them. But Ebed-Melech is a picture of God's elect. It says in Jeremiah 39, beginning in verse 15, before we go to verse 15, let's back up to verse 11, and we'll see the context, the historical situation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, and look well to him, and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent, and Nebuchadnezzar, Rabseris, and Nergal Sherezer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's princes. Even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the prison, and committed him unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home. So he dwelt among the people. The city has been taken. The Chaldeans burn the king's houses and, and the houses of the people. And it, they have overrun the city. Yet Jeremiah is to be well taken care of. And then it says in verse 15, now the word of Jehovah came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon the city for, for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee, but I will deliver thee in that day saith Jehovah, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid, for I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith Jehovah. Ebed-Melech will be delivered in that day. God says he will surely deliver him, And his life will be for a prey. Now, if we go over to Jeremiah 21, we'll find out what it means 
if your life is for a prey. In Jeremiah 21, verse 9, He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be unto him for a prey. There God defines what he means by that. He means someone that goes out of the city, out of Judah, and to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, you will live and your life will be a prey. It is someone who has departed out of the church spiritually. Ebed-Melech will be delivered. God would surely deliver him because God would move in him as he is a type and figure of the elect to come out of the church and to go into the world to Babylon. As soon as a child of God gave notice to their pastor and to the elders and said, I can no longer be a part of this church. I am taking away my membership. I do not want to be a member any longer of this church or any church. And I will not be coming back to the church ever again because God's judgment is upon the churches and congregations. And it would have been a good idea for any believer, and and some believers did do that. They did make it known and let their church know all about it, as God says in Ezekiel 12, wherein he commanded Ezekiel to take him stuff for removing and to do it by day in their sight. Let them know. Why you're coming out of the church. Let them see that you believe the church age is over. Because it would be a witness to them. And in Ezekiel 12. It also points that out. That they might consider. And perhaps think themselves. Well maybe I should come out. Like this person did. But uh, Ebed-Melech came out of Judah. And went to the Chaldeans, his life was for a prey. And and so God uses him as a picture of the elect. One of the remaining few elect that were in Judea, but then he does come out and he does go into captivity. And that's what the Bible says, all the elect should do without exception. Remember in Jeremiah 24, God presented two baskets of figs. And I'm going to read this because it's good for us to be reminded. In Jeremiah 24, verse 1, Jehovah showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Jehovah. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. 
Then said Jehovah unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Thus saith Jehovah, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Jehovah, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Jehovah, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem, that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. The good figs are those that go into captivity to Babylon. The evil figs are the ones that remain in Judah. And that relates to the good people of God or the good elect are those that come out of the church, go and go into the world. And the bad, the evil are those that remain within the church and continue to insist God is with us here and and we will not leave our church. There is the wheat, there is the tares. The wheat leave the congregations, the tares remain behind. This is the teaching of the Bible. And it hasn't changed. And uh, there there is no going back. When God ended national Israel almost 2,000 years ago, that was it. He was done with it for good for these millennium. And when God ended the church age, as he did back in 1988, that was it. He's done with the church. There is no returning back. The commandment of God, it's the last command concerning the church was, come out of her, depart out of the midst and flee to the mountain. That is the command for God's people. And so that's what we're reading about in the book of Daniel here in chapter 1. We're reading about the good figs. We're reading about the wheat, not the tares. No, the, the tares, they stayed in the land of Judah. But here, Daniel and his three friends are types and figures of the believers. And all the language here is pointing to that. The fact that they 
are under the care of the master of the eunuchs, meaning they themselves are eunuchs. Now, Ebed-Melech was a eunuch that God delivered. And, and so here it's not surprising considering how well, how much in a positive way God speaks of eunuchs in the Bible that those that are spiritually representing his elect should be themselves eunuchs. And, and they are. Then notice it says here in verse three in the second part of the verse that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. And each one of those statements can relate to God's elect, the children of Israel, as God's elect are the Israel of God. They are spiritual Israel. Of the king's seed, well, we are um, of royal blood. We're a royal priesthood. All God's chosen people are. And we're also of the family of Christ, who is the king of kings. And, and so we are the king's seed, as it says in Galatians 3.29. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise, and of the princes. And again, that would point to being of the royal family of God. It, God is the ultimate in royalty. Uh, he is the supreme king. And all that are of his family are as princes. We're, we're called prophets, priests, and kings. But God is supreme king, so we rule uh, under him like a prince would rule. And it goes on to say in verse 4 of Daniel 1, Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now it's interesting that the eunuchs points to the people of God, uh, the children of Israel, of the king's seed, of the princes. And then it says, children in whom was no blemish. And actually, each one of these statements identifies with a child of God, with someone that God has saved. Children without blemish, well-favored. Who's well-favored but God's elect, skillful in wisdom. God's elect are made skillful in wisdom because they're given wisdom, who is Christ. Cunning in knowledge, and we, we would have to look at those words, but it also points to God's elect and understanding science. And again, we'll have to look at that, but actually the fact is only God's elect understand science. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if you have a child uh, who is saved, let's say eight, nine, ten-year-old child, and that child knows that God created the world, and they read Genesis, and, and they believe it, and, and, and so then you have a brilliant scientist 
who develops elaborate theories and the world all oh, lifts him up as a great mind and and someone who's got it all figured out and yet he's just spouting ridiculous theories of evolution and big bangs and that that uh, truly um make no sense it's it, evolution and the big bang is nothing but a series of miracles it would require miracle after miracle after miracle for there to have been a big bang for there to have been evolution and this development that they claim it's nothing but miracles step after step all the way through and yet they're unwitnessed miracles and it's ironic that many of the world's scientists are unbelievers they they're atheists or agnostics and they don't believe the bible uh, because uh, many times they say because of the miracles and yet the miracles of the bible were witnessed there there were hundreds of witnesses in some cases that saw christ raise someone from the dead or or saw him multiply the loaves and and feed the multitude and so forth there is actual evidence of people who witnessed Jesus rise from the dead these miraculous things the things that are uh, out of the ordinary but how many people have witnessed evolution how many people were there to witness something coming from nothing with a big bang and and then the processes that they say took place over billions and billions of years well we have no witnesses we we have no one who has ever seen an ape turn into a man we've had no one who has seen anything at all in their whole theory of evolution and so it requires incredible faith to believe in the miracles of evolution without any witnesses and here these same people would critique the gospel of the bible and say well you're believing in 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 miracles well of course we are because there is a god there's a power who has and it necessarily requires a powerful god to be creator to uh bring about the creation that's all around us to give uh we uh, people ourselves life and existence and and so forth yes of course we believe in a uh powerful god that that breaks the barrier of the supernatural to do the things that he did uh when he entered into the world but what do you believe in uh, you believe in uh undocumented miracles is all evolution is well uh here we find king nebuchadnezzar is the one who uh, who wants to gather these young men who are the elect of god he he wants them to come before him and he specifically is looking for children of israel of the king's seed of the princes 
who have no blemish and well-favored and so forth. It's as though he's targeting. It's as though his objective is God's elect. And, and we can be sure that just because God's elect came out of the churches and Satan was within the churches, wreaking havoc, bringing destruction, doing what he does best in destroying truth and and casting it down to the ground and trampling it underfoot. And God gave that to him and allowed him to do those things in order to bring judgment on the rebellious people that were called by his name. Yet God's people were called out of the churches into the world, into spiritual Babylon, where Satan is also ruling. Satan is also ruling over the nations, over the unsaved inhabitants of the earth. And who is always Satan's target? God, the Lord Jesus Christ always the target of Satan and the people of God identify with God. They identify with the Lord Jesus Christ when they identify with the word of God, the Bible. And Satan wants to destroy, desire to destroy the people of God. Even though God says, Nebuchadnezzar was my servant. Even though he was accomplishing the purpose and the will of God in destroying the church. We should never think that this means Satan is some uh, kind of o- obedient creature who who has any good intention towards God or his people. No, Satan was able to accomplish God's purpose because God knew that if he unleashed him, if he loosed him out of the bottomless pit, exactly what he would do, that that he would seek to usurp the authority of God, to sh- enter into the temple and show himself he was God. And, and so God used Satan's evil intentions and desires against himself to accomplish God's purpose concerning the church. Well, those same evil intentions and desires of Satan against Christians or or the Christian church are still in play or in view concerning the elect that came out of the church. He wants to stamp out the kingdom of God. He, he wants to uh, ruin the, anyone who identifies with the word of God. And and so there are certain traits, there are certain characteristics of God's elect. And here is a fairly good list of them. Here is the king, remember back in verse 3, the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring of the children of Israel, of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish. Now that's really a giveaway. Who is without blemish? But what what is blemish? This word is also translated as spot or blot. And it points to 
sin. It, it points to those that, that, uh, have been made unclean really through sin. Uh, it says in Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 21, and whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto Jehovah to accomplish his vow or free will offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. It, uh, that which is without blemish is perfect. And, and, and that's the only acceptable sacrifice God is indicating uh, with free will offering of beeves or sheep. Don't, uh, don't offer some animal that's blind or some animal that that has imperfection in some way, it must be a perfect creature to be an acceptable offering. And there cannot be blemish therein. Remember Job, the man Job. It says in Job 1, in the first verse, Job 1 verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job was perfect. Yes, Job is a type of Christ, but he was also a man, a true believer. And God says that that man, Job, was perfect. And he was because everyone that God saves is made perfect, made righteous made upright and and we're made perfect because all of our sin not most of it not 99.9% of it but all of our sin past present future if we're still alive we're we'll still commit sin all of our sin that we've ever committed presently are committing or will commit has been laid upon Christ at the point of the world's foundation and paid for in full with the death of Jesus and he rose from the dead to justify us because that signaled all sin has been paid. All sin has been cleansed away through the fires of the wrath of God it is purged from Jesus purged from us we have been baptized with the washing away of sin with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with and and so what does that leave us what does that make us perfect it leaves us without any blemish of any kind. Now God goes on to say in Leviticus 24 in verse 19 concerning blemishes it says and if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor as he has done so shall be done to him breach for breach eye for eye tooth for tooth as he has caused a blemish in a man so shall be done to him again. And, uh, you know, I wanted to read that because it's, it's interesting 
here it's speaking of physical blemish. If you lose a tooth, if you lose an eye, or it could be any part of your body, it's it's a blemish. It's a blemish. It's an imperfection. And it's interesting because the world concentrates. It puts forth people, young people typically, that are without blemish. The advertisers use models that have no blemishes. If they do have a blemish, they Photoshop pictures, they they uh, brush it away, they do everything they can to make the individual appear perfect. They want perfect beauty. And we have to wonder why. Because no one is perfectly beautiful. No one uh, has perfect beauty. And yet that is the constant focus of the world's advertising. The world wants to see that which is perfect in beauty. And all we can think is that this is due to the fact that man was created perfect and without blemish. A man's pursuit of a beautiful woman or a woman's pursuit of a handsome man is a pursuit of someone that lacks blemishes. It's a desire really to have a mate or or someone untouched by the effects of sin. A desire, therefore, in a sense, to return to the Garden of Eden, or probably more accurately, it's a it's a desire that expresses the denial of man's fall into sin. At least that's probably what's in view with the world's fascination with youth and beauty. Placing the world's eye on the beautiful is a form of denial regarding the corruption that's entered into the world. And blemishes remind us of the ugliness of sin, the, it, the slightest blemish, the mole or um, anything that pops up on the skin. That it, it shows that man is not perfect. And, and that's exactly what has happened to us spiritually. We're not perfect. We're sinful. We're full of blemishes. And it has cost us our perfect beauty. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Ezekiel 28 and verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes, was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst 
of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So it said back in verse 12 that uh, man was perfect in beauty, perfect in his ways until iniquity was found, until sin. We lost our perfection. We lost our beauty. Uh, in perfect beauty, there's still um, leftover beauty, but there is no perfect beauty. And so man in denial, in constant denial, tries to get himself beautiful using makeup and and everything he can think of to uh, whiten his teeth and, and to do whatever he can do to be beautiful once again, to be perfect, to remove the stain of sin from him and in his deluded state. In his deceived nature, he thinks, if I can only fix myself up outwardly, if I can only uh, make myself appear beautiful, that it's as though I haven't sinned. And, of course, that's not the, the answer. That's not the solution to our blemish, to our imperfection. The only solution is the gospel that God has laid out in his word, as he says in Ephesians chapter 5, in in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. There is perfection restored. There is a return to the original good condition of man at the very beginning. It is through the washing of water by the word of God. God's word cleanses from sin, and now as Job, a man perfect and upright. Now, the elect people of God are without blemish. And that, it so happens, is who? The King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a type and portrait of Satan, is targeting in Daniel 1 children in whom was no blemish. Of course, we know historically the king was just looking for people that that uh, didn't have crooked teeth or they they um, uh, you know they they had both eyes he he was looking for children that were not physically blemished but spiritually spiritually God is revealing Satan's search Satan's pursuit of God's elect, even when they come out of the churches and congregations into the world, he's still, still looking. And, and what's the first thing that's going to happen to these four young Hebrew children? Well, the king is going to appoint their food. He's going to try and change 
their diet. Here is what I want you to eat. He wants them to be in submission to him. Just as he rules in Judah now within the church, he wants these young men that are still under his rule in Babylon to submit. And he wants them to do it here and he wants them to do it later when he makes the golden image. But God's people submit only to God. He only is worshipped. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.